Hello, I'm Jake Lloyd and welcome to How to Build Community, a podcast and a radio show brought to you by Aruka Network. A famous preacher from Scotland once said that only a demanding common task builds community. Now, there can't be many tasks more demanding or more common than climate change. And in this episode, I'm speaking with one of the world's leading environmental campaigners about the challenges of climate change, the importance of building community and how to become what he calls a spiritual activist. Do what you are doing because it is the right thing. Do what you are doing out of integrity. And whether it succeeds or fails is a lesser question. What happens is that when you do that, you start to draw spiritual help to you. And sometimes things succeed in ways you would never have expected. But don't let that be the objective. Let the objective to be faithful to the truth of life. That's the voice of Alistair McIntosh. As well as being an environmental campaigner, he is a Quaker, a lecturer, a community builder, and today's a big thrill for me because he also happens to be one of my favourite writers. Alistair is from the Western Isles of Scotland. In the 1990s, on the tiny Isle of Egg, Alistair became a pioneer of land reform when he helped lead a community campaign to purchase the island from a landowner who held a great deal of power over the community on Egg. This lengthy but ultimately successful campaign set in motion a similar process all over Scotland of communities taking control of their own land, determining their own future, and often also becoming a more environmentally responsible community in the process. Several years later on the nearby Isle of Harris, Alistair helps negotiate the withdrawal of the world's biggest cement company from a devastating super quarry plan on the island. This plan would have drastically altered both the landscape of the island and the community as well. Alistair wrote about both of these experiences in a book called Soil and Soul, and then in a later book called Spiritual Activism, which he co-authored with Matt Carmichael, he explored the spiritual ideas that underpin successful efforts to create social change, particularly on environmental issues, and he did so looking at examples of his own work, but also many others. And having read both of these books, I've been very keen to have Alistair on this show. And in this conversation, we talk about all these things and more. He talks about the religious and spiritual ideas that have shaped his work. He'll tell the story of his involvement in the campaigns on the Isles of Egg and Harris. He'll talk about his understanding of community as not only our relationship with other people, but also with the land and with our spiritual life as well. And he'll share some practical tips and advice about responding to climate change, building community and becoming what he calls a spiritual activist. But when I spoke with Alistair, I first began by asking him what makes the Scottish islands he grew up on a special place. Well, hello, Jake and everybody. I'm Alistair McIntosh. And I grew up on the Isle of Lewis, which is an island off the northwest of Scotland. And in the 1960s, when I was a boy, um, through to the 1970s, when I left the island, it was still very much an indigenous way of life. It was 
an economy, a mixed economy of modern economy and indigenous economy. And during that time, we saw a lot of changes. We saw modernity starting to come in. Um, for example, I would go out when I was aged about um, 13, 14, 15, around about 1970 or so. I would go out fishing and fill my boat with fish. And within a year or two, it was destroyed when industrial fishing started and everything went. And later on, I went out to Papua New Guinea for four years as a VSO volunteer. And I just learned so much from those people because I saw the same happening in their cultures as I had seen happening in ours. And I started to understand it all more deeply because they were showing it to me through their eyes. Mm. So what, what were some of the what were some of the, the things you experienced in Papua New Guinea? Well, three things that had a particular impact on me were what was happening with the fishing. So coastal communities that had been dependent on fish from their reefs were finding that when the Taiwanese trawlers were coming in and sweeping everything up, their food supply was being very seriously adversely affected. Um, secondly, tropical logging. The loggers were coming in and not only were they stripping the rainforests of their protective cover and the source of all that it gives village people, but they were doing this because they were corrupting democracy. They were using the proceeds of illegal logging to bribe politicians to get more logging consents and so logging itself was driving the corruption of, uh, of of the political system in the fledgling democracy they became fully independent in 1976 1977 and then the third thing was mining and the impact that a badly managed large development project like that pumping pollution out into the local river systems had on destabilizing indigenous society. So I visited Bougainville Island during the civil war that was happening there. They're now about to have an independence referendum many years later, but there's been huge suffering caused as a result of the people rising up against the copper mine that was imposed without their consent and destroying their ecosystems. And so looking at all those things shaped how I saw things when I came back to Scotland and I got involved in my work on land reform and environmental protection, as well as community empowerment, people development We'll return in a, in a moment to kind of ideas from other parts of the world, but just thinking again about the, the Western Isles of Scotland and some of the ideas that influenced you there. I know you've talked a bit about uh, Celtic Christianity and the um, oh, yes. their unique, perhaps, uh, spin on Christianity or focus on Christianity. Do you, want to, do you want to introduce Celtic Christianity to people? Well, sure. I mean, spirituality is a hugely, it's really the foundation of all the work that I do. And it really always has been. I'm 63 now. And ever since I started turning on to these things in my late teens, um, it's been an influence, but a growing influence. Not just Christianity, because I grew up in the island with a very conservative form of evangelical Christianity, which was what was widely um, practiced 
there. And I rejected much of that. Um, I became, in my teenage years, agnostic, meaning I took no position. I didn't know whether there was a God or spiritual reality or not. I rejected that. But then I encountered the Hindu scriptures and the Taoist scriptures of the Far East, um, the Sufi teachings of mystical Islam. I encountered all of that. And these things just shed a completely different light on it for me. And I started to reread the Gospels. I wasn't so interested in other parts of the Bible, like the letters of Paul or the Hebrew Bible, the so-called Old Testament. I was specifically interested in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the Gospels of Jesus and what he was saying. And I started to see that with completely different eyes that had been opened by encountering these other faiths. And that led me into mystical Christianity, and in turn that led me into what in Latin America they call liberation theology. Liberation theology, the liberation of theology itself, whether Christian or Hindu or Buddhist or Islamic, the liberation of theology from the knots in which it gets tied in human hands so that it can liberate human beings at multiple levels, at the social level, the psychological level, the spiritual level. Gustavo Gutierrez of Peru, who really set liberation theology going, he talks about those three levels of liberation, that this is about the preferential option, God's preferential option for the poor, God's bias for the poor, and the poor are the poor economically, but also the poor of spirit. Blessed are the poor, but also blessed are the poor in spirit. It's both the outward and inner poverty that is a concern here. So you see, I was picking up these ideas, Jake, from international theology, and especially from countries of the South, the relatively materially poor, but spiritually rich countries. And then I was bringing them back and interweaving them with my work here in Scotland. And you you write a lot about community, and that that's a, a major uh, concern of yours. How how did these things shape your understanding of what community means? I think that when we speak of community, often in the English speaking world, we use it as another word for society. And my view is that community is much deeper than that. That community, and I kind of worked this out with my friend Satish Kumar, originally from India, when in my best-known book, Soil and Soul, I showed this to Satish, and he said, you know, we could add a third one there and make it soil, soul, and society. So community is these three things. Community of the soil community of our relationship with nature, with the environment. Let me jump ahead to community of society, which is community with one another, our political systems and what have you. But the missing link for many people is that sole factor, community with the spirit, community with our spirituality, with the deep ground of being that gives us life whether we understand that to be Christ in a Christian context or Yahweh in a Hebrew context or Allah in a 
Islamic context or Brahman in Hinduism or Taoism or the Buddha nature. I don't care what you call it. To me, it is about the ground of being as love made manifest. And when you start connecting in with that understanding, that mystical understanding, that the deep ground of reality is consciousness, conscious love, the Hindu sort of talk of sat, chit, ananda, being, consciousness, bliss. When you become aware that being held in consciousness is the bliss of cosmic love, then it's kind of like no matter what you face, you find meaning, and if not optimism, you certainly find spiritual hope. Do you just want to, um, people talk uh, quite a bit between the, the difference between optimism and hope. Do you just want to explain what uh, what that difference is to you? Well, the two words in English, hope and optimism, mean virtually the same thing if you look up dictionary definitions. So when I see something like that, I sometimes make my own distinction. And I see that in my writing, when I speak of optimism, I'm going to use that word for optimism in an outward sense, you know, in the hope that poverty is going to get better or the war is going to stop or climate change will be resolved. When I use hope, I use it in the word that, in the sense that spiritual teachers would use it, in which hope, hope if you've got cancer or something like that, in a spiritual sense, is not optimism that you're going to get a miracle cure. Hope is an understanding that if we trust to life, deeper levels of life will break through, that go beyond even death, even suffering and death, that life will start to unfold deeper and deeper layers of meaning if we trust to that spiritual inwardness, interiority of life. And so the hope I'm talking about is intimately tied in with faith, but not blind faith, not faith as a set of beliefs that you have to believe in to belong to a particular religion or whatever, but rather faith simply to keep on walking every next step. Just walk on in your life. No matter what has happened, no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, let it be forgiven. You know, this is one of the great insights of the Christian tradition, the understanding of forgiveness, because that frees you to take the next step. And that journey is more than just your outer life. It's more than just whether you're going to get a job or get rich or um, have a happy set of relationships or whatever. That journey is so much deeper than that. That journey is walking deeper and deeper into what I call the God space, into the Buddha nature, into Allah, into the cosmic Christ who sustains the whole world in his hands. This sense of reality, this sense of the cosmos being you know, profoundly cosmic. It's about stars and planets and the earth and so on. But also, and this is where the Abrahamic religions uh, bring a particular richness, you find it also in Hinduism, it's also deeply personal. 
the love that we are talking about is a very flesh and blood love. But at deeper levels, and we are mostly conscious of it, and that is where things like contemplative prayer, meditation, other spiritual exercises like that help to open our hearts to realize that which is. It, it, it's it, are you leading leading me on to my next question and um, so, so so far <laughs> good, good. so far I've just been uh, primarily asking you to define some of the terms you use and so th- the yeah. last one is do you want to define what you mean by spiritual activism you've, you've written a book uh, with this title or co-written a book with this title um it, firstly is it is it a is it a term that you created well it's an interesting question, that, because I started, first of all, the book Spiritual Activism, Leadership as Service from Green Books is co-authored by my friend Matt Carmichael, who is a younger climate change activist from Leeds. Mm. And basically, Matt took my teaching notes because I've taught spiritual activism at university master's level for many years. He took my teaching notes and gave them a rework to open them up more to a younger generation of activists. So that's how the book is co-authored, along with some of Matt's own ideas woven through it. But when I first started using the term spiritual activism back in the 1990s and building it into my teaching, I wasn't aware of other people using it at that time. I've since come across other people using it. It's now quite widely used. And I noticed that it has come up particularly from Jewish thinkers, Jewish thinkers especially in America. Um, Rabbi Abraham Weiss, W-E-I-S-S, I think his name is, um, Claudia Horowitz, um, both writing books about spiritual activism or the spiritual activist, And so I realized that basically what was happening is that the time for this was ripe. And probably in a number of different places in the world, we were all coming up with similar ideas. People like Thich Nhat Hanh and Sulak Sivaraska in um, Thailand, or Siam, as Sulak prefers to call it. Um, They were coming up with terms like engaged Buddhism. Um, You had liberation theology in Latin America. It's all much the same kind of stuff. Now, the way that I understand it is that to be an activist is to be somebody who is active in life for social, environmental, and perhaps religious change, those three main areas. You are actively engaged. You are somebody who is doing something instead of just having things done to you. That's my understanding of what it is to be an activist. And Most activists think of that as engagement at the political level, the social level, the community level, um, the technological level, all of these practical ways of acting outwardly. But what I've observed is that a lot of activists, if they are not inwardly resourced, start to either burn out or sell out. Look at any book on activism, including our own book, and we have major sections on burnout. And behind that is sellout, because once you've burnt out, you tend to sell out and just give up and go and work for the corporation or whatever it might be 
lose your critical edge. And so the question that I was addressing was what resources have we got that can help us to sustain our activism in the long term, especially when most of what we do is going to end in failure. And I've been very influenced by the Bhagavad Gita from Hinduism on that, because the Gita is basically saying, do what you are called to do in life. Follow your dharma. Follow the opening of the way of God, which is how I would define the dharma. Jesus says the same thing. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow that way, truth, and life. And don't be influenced by whether what you are doing is likely to succeed or fail. Do what you are doing because it is the right thing. Do what you are doing out of integrity, out of chastity in the sense of purity, the Greek origin of which means integrity, wholeness. And whether it succeeds or fails is a lesser question. What happens is that when you do that, you start to draw spiritual help to you. And sometimes things succeed in ways you would never have expected. But don't let that be the objective. Let the objective to be faithful to the truth of life, faithful to however you might understand your sense of the divine. So that's spiritual activism and understanding from many different spiritual traditions, ways of approaching one's work like that. And this is where, you know, reading people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King, um, you know, these kind of spiritual figures, we've got a, a whole range of them profiled in the spiritual activism book, understanding their lives, reading the biography of these people, uh, who else have we got in here? Julia Butterfly Hill, um, Anne Hope and Sally Timmel in Southern Africa, Mama Efua of Ghana with her work on female genital mutilation, Sojourner Truth, the black American activist, Jehan McLeod here in Govan where I am, um, Desmond Tutu, Basava, Mohammed even, you know, when you look at when you look at Islam through the eyes of Muslims, you start to see it rather differently than many of us in the Christian West see it. And you start to see that you're somebody like Mohammed. Would you believe it? I mean, Mohammed was basically campaigning for women's rights to education, to own property, that kind of stuff. We don't get told those things in the mainstream narratives that get taken over by patriarchy. But a spiritual activist needs to know these things. And these things become sources of our strength. Mm. And, and um, moving on to think about climate change um, and, you know, if, framing this conversation in terms of uh, that yeah. quote, that, that quote um, is from George MacLeod, uh, only demanding common task builds community. Um, and thinking uh -huh. of uh, there being no, perhaps no more demanding or more commonly experienced tasks than, than climate change. How, how do, you, do you respond to people who say, 
cultivating this inner stuff is is all is all well and good but there's a kind of an urgency to responding to climate change what 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 kind of things do you say to to people who say that to you i respond with huge difficulty Mm. and huge discomfort because um, (laughs) (laughs) you see well, let me put it like this. Um, three times in the past few months, I've been asked to speak to our friends in Extinction Rebellion. I've been asked to address gatherings here in Scotland. And Extinction, and it, Extinction Rebellion being a, 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 a oh, sorry, climate change. Extinction Rebellion is basically a climate change resistance movement mm. that's, that's um, placing three demands, naming three demands um, I remember them with the acronym TAP, um, truth, T for truth, speak the truth. So they demand that governments and corporations speak the truth. A, act now, zero, net zero um, carbon emissions by the year 2025. And P, politics, a new kind of politics. And the discomfort that I have felt is that, on the one hand, that message is to say, speak the truth and to act now. But for our government to have decarbonisation by 2025 in six years' time, just over one term of a British parliament, for that to happen, are you going to get any kind of politics that would mandate it, short of some kind of a green fascism? Are people going to vote for the absolutely catastrophically revolutionary change to have net decarbonisation in 2025? 2045, 2050, possibly. But can we really do it that quickly? I don't think so. I've seen no ground plan for how that can be done. Now, I say these things to the Green Movement and to our friends in Extinction Rebellion, and I can feel their disappointment. Like, you know, they invited me to come along and speak because I've written about climate change and they were hoping I would come up with answers for how it can all be fixed. And I'm basically saying, folks, you're not going to do that, at least not within democratic structures. And then somebody said to me, well, maybe we need a little bit of authoritarianism then, because I had said, you know, you'd only get that with an authoritarian global government. And my reply to that is, well, you know, if you are going to legitimize authoritarianism, if you're going to legitimize what slides towards or can slide towards fascism, there are other people who can do that very much better than us greenie types. (laughs) And I can just feel the bottom falling out and the kind of disappointment. And and I feel awful saying that, but, you know, we have asked to speak the truth. And I think the truth is that our whole way of life, and I should specify there in the Western world, our whole way of life, but also the aspirations of people in much of the rest of the world, is orientated towards consumerism. And we are so interconnected and deeply locked into that that we're not going to be able to slow that down quickly enough 
in order to head off the dangerous climate change that is already coming on us. Now, where does that leave us? I've just been asked to do another book. I've said it could be a very short one because I don't really have a lot to say. It's a fairly simple message that I've got on all of that. And my view, in fact, the title of the book I'm going to be working on is Riders in the Storm. Riders in the Storm. We've got to learn how to ride the storms that are coming upon us. And this is where the spiritual activism comes in. It comes in, Jake, in two main ways. First of all, spiritual activism comes in in helping us to understand how we are in this predicament. Because my analysis is that greenhouse gas emissions are the combination of world population and the level of consumerism, the level of consumption. Consumerism I define as consumption in excess of what is needed for dignified sufficiency in life. So some people will say it's all about too many people on the planet. And I say more significant than too many people on the planet is too much overconsumption in the rich countries of the world. And that's what's driving climate change. And we need to understand what's gone wrong that allows that to happen. And my analysis is a way in which marketing has been developed to generate want rather than simply satisfying needs. This generation of insatiable want, whereby I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try. Mm. That insatiable generation of want has captured our consciousness. It has... We, we, we've kind of sold out consumer idolatry. And, you know, when you look at what the Old Testament prophets, what the old Hebrew Israeli prophets were doing in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as Christians slightly rudely call it, <laughs> all the time they were railing against idolatry. And what was idolatry? Idolatry was that you were chasing after riches and you were neglecting for groups of people. You are neglecting the widow, the orphan, the alien, the foreigner, and the poor. And that's why they were getting so worked up, because God's justice is about justice for all those vulnerable categories of people, just to have the right to life, because we are all God's people. We are all Buddha nature. We are all Atman as manifestations of Brahman. All Muslims are as one body, says a hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So the first stage in spiritual activism is diagnosing the issues, that basically we have succumbed to a form of collective idolatry in this high level of consumerism. And then the second stage is what do you do about it? Because, you see, unless we tackle what is what has gone wrong inside our minds, inside our psyches, inside our souls, unless we tackle that, no amount of technical or economic or political measures to tackle climate change are going to work. Because we're all going to just want to carry on consuming more and more stuff. And like we already see happening, carbon dioxide levels 
are still going steadily up and up in spite of the measures being taken to quell them. So that's when we then get on to consciousness. That's when we then get on to saying there's got to be a revolution in consciousness that changes our values as people, which is what the prophets of all of the great religions based upon love have always been saying. And then you'll turn around and you will rightly say, well, that's been tried for thousands of years now and, you know, we're still in the mess where we are. And all I can say is, well, we've never been in such a big mess as we are now in terms of climate change being such a global phenomenon. We've never been in the position where we could communicate across the world and across cultures like we can now. We've got to shift. We had the atomic revolution. And as Teilhard de Chardin says, you know, we have captured the power of the atom. Now we need to bring about that atomic transformation within ourselves. Now, again, I said earlier that in spiritual activism, you do what you are called to do because it is right. It is following the path of Dharma, the way of Christ, however you want to call it. You do not necessarily because it is going to succeed, but because it is the right thing to do. And so when I look at climate change, Jake, I don't have many grounds for optimism that we're going to sort things out quickly enough to stop very serious climate change and much suffering on Earth. But I do have hope that through this journey, if we do it with our eyes and hearts open, we can start to deepen in our humanity. We can start to deepen consciousness on Earth. And if these times have any meaning, I think that deepening of consciousness, progressively deeper and deeper, walking into the love of nothing less than God, however you want to call the divine. That is what I see as the meaning of the times we are in. And that is also what makes it such an important and exciting time to be living in. Hmm. Thank you. I I want to move on to... um explore some of the some of the lessons you've learned so you're you're well respected as a community builder environmental campaigner and known i guess most famously for the isle of egg and for the super quarry and opposing that um i i just i think it'd be good to to maybe learn some of the or for you to share some of the lessons you learned um, that can help people listening to this, whatever community project they're involved with or campaign or whether whether it be environment, environmentally related or otherwise. Um, so oh, so I'll, I'll go, I just want to go through a few questions based on, um, sure, on some please. of your experiences. Um, firstly, and I guess this connects to, to climate change, but what did you learn about the, the best ways to act local when, when a lot of power is, uh, is centrally held, is, is held by people uh, elsewhere? Oh, well, you push to strengthen the local. You know, here in Scotland, this is why people like me would like to see us independent so that we can deepen our own policy and locus for action on these types of issue. The local is very important. And if you look at many spiritual activists, Gandhi would be a good case in point. 
they've recognised the same, that people need to be more in control of their own lives. And they need to be able to take decisions at a local level. So that would be one step. In very practical terms, you know, if you look at the house I'm living in here in the city of Glasgow, um, we've got solar panels on the roof. And during the daytime, we use a lot of that energy for an air-to-air heat pump system, which blows warm air into our house. Now, the result of that is that we've cut our domestic carbon footprint from 5.4 tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions a year down to 1.9 tonnes, a 64% reduction. We've been doing that for seven years now. So these are the kind of very local things that with the right kind of supportive government policies in place, like the ones that made it easy to install solar panels, that government programme has now been terminated. But when it was running, with those kind of policies in place, you can take very practical steps for change. But then the question is, how do you share that? How do you spread that? And so the importance of being connected in socially, locally. Um, Varen, my wife and I, we are living in Govan, the area of Glasgow where we're living, which is quite a, um, a low-income area of Glasgow. We're living here because we're asked to come here by local people involved in setting up a local charitable organisation called the Galgill Trust. And it's enough to say that it's involved with issues of poverty and local empowerment. But we're involved in that as a community meal every week. Um, sometimes we'll make a dish and take it down and share it, have a meal together. If I've got interesting visitors, I'll take them down to share a few words. You make community in these ways. You invite people into your home or you book a hall and have a meeting about something. You create spaces of togetherness and you create in a spiritual sense what the American Quaker Parker Palmer speaks of as spaces that are hospitable to the soul. Spaces where people are invited to come to share of themselves from a level that is spiritual, even if they might not be outwardly religious. So I think in answer to your question, it's a combination of these things. On the one hand, very practical, like, you know, solar panels on the house or whatever is appropriate, compost pins out the back, that kind of stuff. And on the other hand, very social, um, of holding spaces where people can be, can safely be. And on another hand, if I can have three hands, <laughs> doing that from a spiritual grounding, you've got again there the soil, soul, society type of thing. Um, you know, the environment, the practical things you can do in the environment, the soul, hospitable to the soul, uh, society, creating spaces of togetherness. That's, that's what we do here. And that basically takes up all the free time that we have got. It's as much as we're able to do. And that would be my answer to your question about what can you do locally. And it's, it's helped a lot if you've got a local political system that is supportive of that, that funds things like that and so on. Mm. If you haven't got that, then, you know, sometimes you have to work on the political system. 
So I'm not I'm not averse to getting involved in politics, but I do tend to avoid party politics mm. because the kind of approach I'm coming from needs to try and work across different political parties as much as possible. It's not always possible, but as much as possible, I try to do that. I'd, I'd like to come back to that and working with people who, who maybe whose ideas you oppose or, or are contrary to some of the things you're trying to do. But but firstly, just, just thinking about, so again, thinking about the local uh, and its connect, connections to national, international, global. Um, so the campaign of which you were a key part on the Isle of Egg, that kind of captured the imagination of people around the world. And um, I just wonder why why you think that was. Was it was it the fact that it was an inspiring story? Was it a bit of clever to, clever uh, PR on your part, or was it a bit of both? <laughs> it's all of those things. Um, you know, just for your listeners who might not know, um, what happened is that in 1986, I came back from my second two-year stint in Papua New Guinea. And while there, I had had Papua New Guineans saying to me, how come you are not in control of your own land in Scotland? Because half the land in Scotland is owned by fewer than 500 people. And you know, we have huge landowners, which is basically because in the past, our land was colonized, but we were never taught that history. So only now we start to understand what really happened to bring that about. But I got back from Scotland, and in 1991, I got invited to become part of a small group trying to bring an island, a 7,000-acre, what's that, about 2,500-hectare um, island off the west of Scotland into community ownership so that it would be owned or held by the people actually living on it and not just be a playground for a rich man which is what its history had been in recent generations. And so when the island was on the market, we launched, we we registered a charitable trust called the Isle of Egg Trust and was only £10, $15 in the bank. We held a huge big press press conference and we said we're going to aim to buy the island and bring it into community ownership. And over the next six years, there was an almighty battle in which more and more people came on board with the thing. The trust became fully democratized on the island. The landowner responded by issuing eviction letters to people who he saw as being the ringleaders. We had an almighty battle, and eventually the landowner sold to somebody else who then went bankrupt. Because, you see, it's not easy to run an island like that when the natives are restless. And the name of the game we were playing was market spoiling by creating a condition in which the natives were restless, if I can put it like that. And who wants to buy an island for a holiday hideaway when you've got that kind of a revolution (laughs) going on? And this all generated, it was so unexpected, it generated so much publicity that in the end we managed to raise 1.6 million pounds from 10,000 donations from across the world. And we were able to buy out the island for about half of what it had originally been valued at. And now we're, what, 22 years on, um, egg runs itself, 
the people are able to build houses without paying huge amounts of money to the landowner for the housing plot. They've set up all kinds of small businesses. They're, they've got their own egg electricity system where 90% of their energy is produced from renewables and they run their own electricity grid entirely as a community business. If you Google Isle of Egg, spelled E-I-double-G, and electricity, you'll see videos from groups like Al Jazeera Television who went there to study what was going on. And we get people coming from Brazil or West Papua province in Indonesia have been to see what is going on there and to learn from it. So, you know, what made all of that happen? Partly it was the outer activism, all the usual stuff. But at the deepest level, I believe that what made it happen was the spiritual underpinning of it that those of us who set up the original Egg Trust saw this as the kind of work to which we were called and a kind of work which was about the opening of the Spirit of God, what Christianity would call the Holy Spirit, in these times. And most people looking at that thought that we were crazy, we were bonkers when we would talk about stuff like that, even talking about it fairly low-key. But it made huge sense to community tradition bearers, to people in that community who are deeply rooted with the spirituality of the place. You mentioned earlier the Celtic spirituality. Egg is a place where Celtic, the old Scottish, Irish, Welsh, Breton spirituality is still very much present. And we kind of encouraged that. We drew that out. And I'll tell you what, Jake, it gave us a strength to persevere. At times when it just felt so hard and so costly personally that I and others felt like giving up on it. It gave us strength to persevere until others started to come on board. I liken it to, you know, sometimes you've only got a teaspoon with which to dig. You've only got, you haven't got a shovel or anything like that. You've only got a teaspoon, but you dig out tiny channels from the river and water starts to flow down those channels. And then other people come in and start digging because they see something is happening. And the aim of a lot of my work is to dig out these channels into which a wider political flow can enter. Because the politicians who started off being very skeptical and even laughing at us, when they saw that things were beginning to happen on egg, then they wanted to be part of the action. So, of course, we then stood back and let them come in and take our seats and, you know, let them take the credit for what happened because we're not doing it for the credit. We're doing it so that it happens. And the politicians come in and they come in and, you know, um, announce the formation of a Scottish land fund and stuff like that. And so it you know, it all starts happening, but it is that spiritual spark, it is that spiritual light that leads these movements, and that is the level at which spiritual activism works. Mm. I, I think you might have already possibly answered this question, but but when you detail this story in, in your book, Soil and Soul, uh, the, there's a line where you say an early win would, would have been the worst possible outcome. <laughs> um, do, do you want to just, uh, just explain why... 
why an early victory um, in this campaign yeah. would have been the worst possible outcome. Well, basically, I mean, the owner of Egg was willing to sell with us, sell to us if we could raise a huge pot of money. And um, the only way we could possibly have done that would be, you know, if a millionaire had turned up or something like that in response to all the publicity we were generating and giving us the money. But I actually feared that happening because in the early years, between 1991 and 1994, the people on Egg weren't ready to take it on. They were too divided amongst themselves about the issue. It wasn't until the situation with private landlordism got so bad, it got worse and worse, that the full support really, or pretty much full support, came on side with the idea of a community buyout. And only then were they really ready. And so had we got the, had we succeeded too early, I think it probably wouldn't have worked out very well. There'd have been huge division. We wouldn't have been able to pull in the resources to keep it going. So in a sense, I, I was thankful for the fact that we had to struggle with it. And it then happened when the time was right. The opening of the way came when the way was ready to open. And, and you see, there you see, at least in terms of how people like myself and Tom Forsyth or um, Mary McKinnon, one of the key indigenous figures on the island, that they were looking at it. You know, Mary McKinnon, who is a key figure in the tiny little Catholic church on the island. When, when I go to their church services, which are ecumenical, open to people of any denomination, um, on a Sunday when I'm up there, it's so interesting, and it was so interesting during the campaign, because they would never pray for the success of the campaign. They would always pray for everybody, including the landlord. Mm. And they would pray that the best outcome would come about. Now, there you see the spiritual ground. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's why it worked, I believe. I, I know that that's invisible to the vast majority of people who were involved in that campaign and so on. But I, I believe that that ethic of praying for everybody, including your adversaries, and praying that the best thing for all will materialize, uh, I believe that that was helped, what helped to keep us on the right path and helped to constellate the powers that brought it into happening. And now, we, you know, now we've got over 400 of these community land trusts in Scotland. Um, 560,000 acres of Scotland are under community land tenure. That's nearly 3% of the Scottish land. It's, it's just wonderful. If you if your people want to find out more, Google the organization Community Land Scotland, and you'll read there all about how it works and case studies of some of the main community buyout groups. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm sure plenty will want, will want to do that. Um, uh, Alistair, I, I'm, I'm taking up too much of your time. We're already over. No, over. you're not. Um, I'm loving it. Carry okay, on. good. <laughs> because we haven't talked about the, the your campaign against the super quarry as well, and and the, I, yeah. I feel like there's a lot to learn there. So that so this was yeah. a, a a campaign to stop the the building of this um, enormous quarry on um, which island was it? Sorry, it's slipped my mind. From... On the Isle of Harris. So mm. I grew up in the Isle of Lewis, and the. Isle of Harris is the name given to the southern part, 
the difference between them yep. being the division being a mountain range rather than the sea. But what happened there, Jake, is that at the same time as as I was involved in egg in the 1990s, there was a proposal by a multinational roadstone company, uh, a company crushing up rock to build roads with, to build a super quarry, which would have been the biggest roadstone quarry in the world, in a national scenic area on the Isle of Harris. So to cut the story short, I got involved in um, challenging that along with most of the main environmental organisations in Scotland and the community itself being initially very much in favour because we were told it would create up to 500 jobs and then by the end of it turning strongly against when they realised the truth of what was going to be landed on them after a government public inquiry had flushed it all out. But what my part was in that is that the mainstream organisations were making all the conventional arguments about the ecology, about the social impact, um, the economic impact, um, all kinds of technical issues to do with navigation and shipping and all of that kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, that's good and well, but it might reach the head, but it's not going to reach the heart. And initially... The main thing was to open people's hearts in the local community as to the danger that was facing them. Because I'd seen it all in Bougainville and what impact a huge development had on an indigenous community there. And none of us really had an idea of the sheer scale or corporate impact that the quarry would have had because it just wasn't in people's experience. So the particular approach that I came to came at was liberation theology, that the Outer Hebrides of Scotland are very religious in a, in a Protestant sense of Christian religion. And at that time in the 1990s, the idea of eco-theology, of ecological theology was just kicking off. And I was in touch with that movement. And it was basically pointing out that, you know, when the Old Testament prophets were railing against the idolatry of the rich and of the political leaders and so on. It wasn't just the widow and the poor and the orphan and the alien who were suffering, but it was also the ecology. You see this coming through very strongly, especially in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is very strong that this kind of idolatry was destroying the world for plants and animals and turning what had once been the Garden of Eden into a desert. So I started introducing that, and the way that I did it was that when the government launched a public inquiry into whether the quarry should proceed or not, I invited two people to give testimony with me. One was the war chief of the Mi'kmaq Nation in Nova Scotia in Canada, Chief Sulian Stone Eagle Herney. So I brought Stone. I raised some money and brought Stone Eagle over to testify from the point of view of native spirituality. So he was talking about, you know, if human beings carry on destroying the earth, the earth will destroy the organism that is damaging her. This is our teaching. So he was bringing in the nature spirituality. 
But I also managed to persuade the Reverend Professor Donald MacLeod of the Free Church College, that is, the Free Church is an evangelical Protestant Reformed Tradition Church in Scotland. I persuaded him also to give testimony because he was concerned that people were selling out to capitalism and that capitalism would use them and in the end just throw them on the rubbish heap once it had got what it wanted. So the three of us all presented in different ways on the idolatry of the thinking that was going on, the idea that, quote, the super quarry will be our salvation, economically speaking. And we were basically saying, your salvation doesn't come from multinational corporation. And, you know, we succeeded in stopping that. And now, that was, what, 2004, uh, 2005, that, that it was finally stopped. The company eventually, well, it got taken over by a French company, Lafarge, and we managed to persuade them to pull out. And now you go to the Isle of Harris, and there's pretty much full employment. Um, I was booking into a hotel there recently, and I said to a young local woman, how is it here these days? She didn't know who I was. She said, it's wonderful. Um, a lot of the young people are coming back because there's jobs now. And why is that, Jake? It's because they've had a lot of land reform there also. Mm. You've now got the North Harris Trust and the West Harris Trust, the greater part of Harris is now in community land tenure. And so they've got all these, you know, micro hydro and um, small wind turbines and social housing and businesses. And oh, my goodness, it's places becoming a boom town, but it's <laughs> for an island. But it's of the people. It's, it's, and it's for the people. It's in control of the people. It's not dependent on vast multinational companies from outside pushing only one line of business, which is to blast the place apart and ship away 10 million tons of rock a year or whatever it was. It, it would be good. Six, it, 60 million tons of rock a year. I think it was yeah. whatever it Millions of <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, so so the, this Native American chief, uh, this uh, evangelical... Stone Eagle, yeah. So, yeah, the, um, you, you built quite a, co a diverse coalition there. I wonder what... Do you have any tips to share about building coalitions with, with, with diverse groups of people? Yeah, I, see, I would say, you know, if you're in a hard-pressed situation... Look for allies and look for allies, especially in unexpected places, because, you know, usually when something wrong or that is not in the interests long term of a community is being done, those who are doing it want to do it under veil of secrecy. They don't want their names to be known. Um, they, they don't want it to be visible until it's a fait accompli, until it's done. And by bringing in allies like, like I did in the way I've described, it really blew it onto the it blew it up into the newspapers and on television and what have you, because it was the unexpected, and you know people would listen to Stone Eagle talking about um, the spirit of the Creator manifest in nature, and they would even listen to Professor McLeod talking about how John Calvin talked about nature as being the beautiful theatre of God's creation, not the kind of thinking you would normally associate with Calvin, but he, he said that and was quite strong on that. And so when you had figures like that saying these things, the media would take 
interest because they knew that it would interest people. To build alliances, put out feelers, ask for help, and see what kind of help might come to you. Hmm. And, Don't be alone. They'll yeah. pick you off if you're alone. They'll, they'll pick you off. Have, have have the cameras on you and because they know that those cameras will quickly turn onto them if they are abusive towards mm. you. But you've you also um, kind of learned to work with uh, people whose whose ideas whose ideas you might oppose and 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 find common ground with uh, enemies, for want of a better word. What, what what's your advice for working with those you oppose? My starting point there is that Jesus said, "Love your enemies." He never said you won't have enemies. He had plenty himself, and they did him in in the end. But he said, love your enemy. So what does that mean? It means you push your enemy with one hand. But at the same time as you're pushing, at the same time you're saying, no, we are not going to put up with this. We are going to resist this. We are going to resist what you are trying to do to us. At the same time, you put another hand behind them so that you catch them if they fall. You don't seek to destroy them, you seek to transform them. Now, just two two quick examples of that is that after Lafarge, the French company, the biggest, at that time, it was the biggest concrete company in the world. Um, after they pulled out of the super quarry, they came back to me and they said, well, Alistair, you know, we agreed with you in the end that this would not have been the right place to build a super quarry. And we pulled out. Hmm. And, you, we, you know, I negotiated with them what I called a dignified exit strategy by which we would treat this as a triumph for corporate ethics, for corporate social responsibility. They said, that's all very well, Alistair, but you still use quarry products. Even when you ride your bike along the road or the house you're in, you're using quarry products, which we make. So will you join our sustainability stakeholder panel and help us to understand how to do it better? My goodness. I said, what? Your greenwash committee? Greenwash <laughs> being, you know, when a company tries to act green so it can look good yeah. in the media. Yeah. And they said, and they said, no, we're really trying to do the right thing because we realize that there are problems in our industry, but everybody depends on it. So we want to do the right thing, like quarry restoration, um, managing our quarries well, um, reducing the carbon dioxide emissions per tonne of cement produced and all of these many different parameters, anti-corruption measures and all the rest of it, all of these kind of things. So I got back to all my campaigning colleagues and I said, what do you think? And they said, well, they've got a good point. Um, they said, do it, but don't take their money. Only take expenses. So for 10 years until 2013, I served in that panel. And my goodness, it was very powerful because they came to trust us, me and people like worldwide, WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature. And there was somebody from UNEP and um, you know, various NGOs that were had expertise that were advising them on how to do it better and what they sh shouldn't be doing or what they should be doing. So we, um, you, you know, for, for, for 10 years, I did that, and eventually when I felt I couldn't really give them any more because I'd said it all before, 
I came off. But that was one example. And I learned so much about seeing it from their point of view and persuading them how to see it from our point of view. So, you know, one example of what happened is that previously they had measured the success of their business in terms of how much volume of roadstone and cement and concrete they produced each year. And we said, no, you need to shift from the quantitative to the qualitative. And we persuaded them to adopt as their idea that they were about sustainable building solutions. So how can you make things out of recycled products? How can you design building products like plasterboard and so on that are easy to recycle when their lifespan is finished? How can you plan for an industrial ecology where the waste product from one stream becomes the raw material for the other? And it was just astonishing the developments they made in that over those 10 years. Hmm. Another quick example is the work that I do with the military, that in various schools of war across Europe, and particularly in the UK Defence Academy, the Joint Services Command and Staff College at Frivenham, for 22 years now, I've been invited each year to lecture senior military, up to three or 400 of them at a time, so I've now spoken to over 7,000 senior military in my time in a one-hour lecture followed by discussion about nonviolence. And basically what's going on there is that the military are recognizing that violence isn't a solution. Um, they feel they may have to use it sometimes. They may have to use force sometimes. But basically, you know, a lot of these people, a lot of these military, at least in European countries, are thoughtful people who are genuinely concerned about how do you create peace. And so a lot of, you know, like the Irish military, and I speak to them every year at their school in Curragh, um, they are entirely a peacekeeping UN force that goes to places like Lebanon and does their work and so on. And I'm saying to them, there is much you can learn from nonviolence. Nonviolence is about standing in your spiritual power. That is a different type of authority. It gives you a different kind of command over violent situations. And whereas nonviolence isn't likely to be their main thing, at least they give it a listening. And at least they understand what it is that we are doing when we use nonviolence, for example, in protesting nuclear submarines at the Faslane nuclear submarine base near here in Glasgow. Uh, we're basically saying to them, look, having these weapons of mass destruction is morally corrosive. It subjects you to moral hazard, to use their own terminology. And the reason why we lie down in front of the gates and blockade it periodically and get arrested and all the rest of it, the reason why we do that is to raise awareness. And you know what, Jake? You know, I get some saying to me, you know what? You remind us of the limits. Hmm. You get in the way, you're a bloody nuisance, but you remind us of the limits. And so it's so interesting to see, certainly at the at senior military levels, um, a willingness to listen. And you see, if we go on, if we go into these things, only presuming that our enemy is our enemy and not thinking that it's just possible we might be able to turn our enemy to be our friend, if we put that second hand behind them to catch them. If we love our enemies in the sense of 
giving our enemy respect, treating them as worthy adversaries instead of just shouting names at them and dehumanizing them. If we do that, then you create a potential for transformation. If we do, if we do not do that, we actually end up dehumanizing ourselves and we start to take on the likeness of our enemy. Mm -hmm. um, can I just finally ask two, two quick questions? I know we've got... We've, We've hit the hour mark now, but um, just, <laughs> just, just just briefly. And again, you, you I guess you've you've uh, you touched on this now. T could you do you have any tips for um, uh, being an opponent to some to something? Wait, you know, because your your message is uh, perhaps negative rather than positive. Do you have tips for maybe framing your message or what is he trying to do in in more positive terms? Oh, goodness. Uh, yes. I mean, if I go back to Lafarge and the Sustainability Stakeholders Panel there between 2003 and 2013, um, you know, I would say to them, when we would suggest things that they could and should be doing to either reduce the impact of quarries or to put more focus onto sustainable building solutions, um, I, I, I would say two main things to them. I would say to them, first of all, look, if the advice that we are giving you is not going to be in the interests of your long-term profit, profitability, I'm not talking about short-term, but in terms of your long-term profitability, then ignore it because you will only go under and be eaten up by other competitors. And you could just feel the sigh of relief because we were recognizing that the reality is that they have to operate in a competitive environment and be answerable to shareholders. And so doing that kind of thing built trust. It showed that we had the interests of them and their work in hand, even though what we were suggesting was challenging. And the second thing I would say to them is that, you know, every year we would have a meeting chaired by the chief executive, who was Bruno Lafont for most of the time that I was involved as Lafarge. And he would pull in all his senior executives from around the world, all the top people in this biggest men company in the world would be sitting with 10 of us who are on the sustainability panel for a full day discussing issues in challenging depth. And I would say to them, look, ladies and gentlemen, all of you have made it. You've all got to the top of business. You probably all made enough money to retire several times over. But what are you going to tell your grandchildren when you sit them on your knee and your grandchild says, granddad, grandmummy, what did you do to make the world a better place? Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of way I would work with them. Mm. With the military, likewise, you know, I say to the military, you know, Okay, I'm coming from a very different place of full-on nonviolence because Jesus never taught just war theory. That was Augustine. Jesus taught and practiced full-on nonviolence. And, and I know how challenging that is to them because many of them are religious people. Uh, many of them are quite disquieted when I point out that truth. But then I kind of understand where they're coming from. And I throw up a picture on these slides of a trench in the First World War, a long winding trench going over the hillside and the soldiers with their guns popping up at different points. And I say to them, but look, 
we're all living on a long front. We're doing this work in life on a long front. None of us can see it exactly as the other sees it from their position on that long front. And above all, none of us have got a God's eye view. So do what you are called to do with integrity. And if you can carry on in your integrity doing it, then carry on doing it. That is the message of the Bhagavad Gita, what Krishna said to Arjuna. But if you find you are no longer in your integrity, then look at doing something else. And I just kind of leave it at that. Because if I try pushing or you know, bullying them, that destroys the whole purpose. That's not nonviolence. You've just got to try to open people's minds and hearts and not least confess your own complicity. So I always say to them, you know, I come to you with blood on my hands too. You know, I flew to be here or drove or even took a train or whatever to be here. Um, I know that that oil was fought for. I too am complicit. Mm-hmm. And you can just feel the silence as it sinks in because they see that you're you're in a different position on the long front, but you're not trying to embarrass them by claiming moral superiority. Hmm. That's a good tip. Um, okay, f- f- final question I have. So we've talked, we've talked, I guess the kind of overarching theme has been about spiritual activism. If, if People listening to this think, right? Yeah, I want to be a, I want to be a spiritual activist. Where, where's the, where's the best place to start? Oh goodness me! You know what, Jake? I get people coming to see me. I get quite a few youngish people coming to see me, and they'll, if I can be paraphrased, you know, some of them will say, um, "I want to learn how to do what you do." And I say, "Like what?" They said, "Well, things like egg and the super quarry and." speaking to the military and all the rest of it. And I say, oh, um, great. Uh, They say, how do we do it? I say, well, you know, go down to a local organization and offer to sweep the floor or do the photocopying. (laughs) And they say, no, 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 you don't understand. I want to do what you're doing. And I say, yes, that's exactly how I started (laughs) doing what I'm doing. Matt Carmichael and I subtitled our book, Leadership a service. And we tell the story that when Gandhi was a young man, he went to Congress and offered to volunteer. And the Secretary of Congress said to him, we get hundreds of young Indians coming every day offering to volunteer. What can you do that's any different? And Gandhiji replied, I will do whatever most needs doing. At which point the Secretary called the whole office to attention and said, look at this young man. He has come in and said he will do whatever most needs doing, no matter how menial it might be. If we had more like that, India would soon be independent. Hmm. That's what I tell them, Jake. That's what I tell them. And some of them embrace that, and others are like the rich young men in the Bible, who in Jesus says, give it to the poor or serve the poor, it is said he walked away sadly because he was very rich. They're not prepared to let go of the ideas they're holding on to. They're not prepared to put themselves at the service of others. And then gradually over time, you know, things may shift 
and they become the one that is leading something. But that is not the point. The point of leadership or service is not that you aim to be a leader. It's that if you find yourself being or becoming a leader in a situation, you never forget who you are serving. Metaphorically speaking, the widow, the orphan, the alien, a foreigner, and the poor, as well as the earth itself. Thank you so much, Jake, for the time you've shared with me this evening. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful, Alistair. We can leave it there. Um, I'm so grateful. We've, got a, we've, got, we've done double what, what uh, I intended, but yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful. You're most welcome. And you know, every encouragement to your people who are listening to this, wherever they are in the world. And remember, you are not alone. The communion or community of the saints or whatever word in your tradition you would use it, the, those who are both seen and unseen are with you when you're in this work of spirituality, which is a work of profound interconnection of consciousness through the reality of love. That was Alistair McIntosh, an environmental campaigner, a Quaker, writer, lecturer, and lots of other things besides. And if you'd like to learn more about him, then you can check out his books or visit his website, alistairmackintosh.com. And I'll spell that A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R-M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H. Alistair McIntosh. And that's almost it for this episode. Before we go, I will remind you that you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community on our SoundCloud page or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community Aruka Network. And Aruka is A-R-U-K-A-H. You can also learn more about us on our website, arukanetwork.org. And finally, if you have some feedback on this show or suggestions for future interviewees, then you can reach me via email jake at arukanetwork.org and I would love to hear from you. But that's it from me. Until next time, bye for now.